Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's now stand for the reading of our passage this morning. It is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. We've made it to the end of the book. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone away astray from the faith. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to start with a bit of a history lesson here as we uh, come to this passage. One of, the, one of the guiding principles of the Reformation was the, the doctrine of the perspicuity of God's Word. And perspicuity is just a fancy word that means clarity. The clarity of God's Word. So the doctrine of the perspicuity of God's Word is that God's Word is easily understood and is readily, is, it's readily available, um, accessible to bring anyone to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Uh, through, through many ages, the uh, Roman Catholic Church has denied such a doctrine. Right? The, the meaning of Scripture, they said, was, was very obscure and needed really the special knowledge of priests or the priestly office to make it make sense to the common person. Um, Luther uh, began beating up on that view, and in his um, most famous work, The Bondage of the Will, here's what he says. He says this, But the notion that in Scripture some things are recondite or obscure... And all is not plain was spread by the godless sophist, paid te- and the sophists were paid philosophers of the Greek culture. And he goes on, who have never yet cited a single item to prove their crazy view, nor can they. And Satan has used these unsubstantial specters to scare men off reading the sacred text and to destroy all sense of its value so as to ensure that his own brand of poisonous philosophy reigns supreme in the church. I certainly grant that many passages in the scriptures are obscure and hard to elucidate, but that is due not to the exalted nature of their subject, but to our own linguistic and grammatical ignorance. And it does not in any way prevent our knowing all the contents of scripture. For what solemn truth can be... Can the scriptures still be concealing now that the seals are broken, the stone rolled away from the door of the tomb, and that greatest of all mysteries brought to light, that Christ, God's Son, became man, that God is three in one, that Christ suffered for us and will reign forever? And are not these things known and sung in our streets? Take Christ from the scripture, and what more will you find in them? You see than that the entire content of the scriptures has been brought to light, even though some passages which contain unknown words remain obscure. 
Thus, it is unintelligent and ungodly too when you know what the contents of Scripture are as clear as can be to pronounce them obscure on account of those few obscure words. If words are obscure in one place, they are clear in another. What God has so plainly declared to the world is in some parts of Scripture stated in plain words, while in other parts it still lies hidden under obscure words. But when something stands in broad daylight, and a mass of evidence for it is in broad daylight also, it does not matter whether there is any evidence for it in the dark. Who will maintain that the town fountain does not stand in the light because the people down some alley can't see it? while everyone in the square can see it. Now, he's getting at the point that, that the scriptures, yeah, there are some things that are hard to understand, but that's not because scripture is somehow deficient or obscure or hidden. It's because we are deficient and our sin clouds our understanding of scripture. But scripture teaches itself that, that scripture is understandable to every man. Right? Scripture teaches that. In these words, this is Deuteronomy 6. In these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You, every man, shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You, all of you, will be able to even teach these words. Earlier in the Apostle Paul's letter to Timothy, to Pastor Timothy, Timothy is exhorted to give himself to something, and it's a very simple thing he's exhorted to give himself to, and that's the public reading of Scripture, which implies that all who hear can come to an understanding of it. If, if he's just to give himself to the reading of the Word, it means that all who hear can come to an understanding. This does not forbid the, the explication and the application of the Scriptures by those who are trained for that task, ministers of the Word, But the understanding of the perspicuity of Scripture has been a foundational doctrine in the Reformed Church since the early 16th century. Scripture teaches it. um, Scripture teaches it. So the Reformed wrestled the Bible out of the hands of the Roman clergy who taught that Scripture was obscure. God does not speak with a lisp. What he says is clear, though we, because we are sinful and ignorant, may not always understand it. As Luther said, the fault lies with us, not with God's word. The doctrine of perspicuity is what led the early reformers, men like Wycliffe and Tyndale and Luther, to translate the scriptures out of the Greek and Hebrew and Latin and into the the people's common tongue. Right? Tyndale, who was eventually killed by the Roman Catholic Church for his translation work, said this, and you probably remember this, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy who drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do, as he was speaking to a priest or cardinal or somebody. So along with the doctrine of perspicuity comes an understanding of how we come to understand and formulate Christian doctrine. If Scripture's clear, then doctrine derived from, from the Word of God is clear. If the Scriptures are clear, if God's speech is clear, we 
needn't use man's wisdom or vain philosophy in order to understand the word better. Right? If there is something hard to understand in Scripture, do we then resort to philosophy? Do we then resort to science? No. We don't resort to those things to come to an understanding of it. No. If something's hard to understand in Scripture, where do we go? To Scripture. To clear parts of Scripture. To elucidate the unclear parts. The Confession says it this way, our, our Westminster Confession all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all, yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned, not only the Presbyterian but everybody else is how we think as proud Presbyterians, right? Right? But the unlearned, in a due sense of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them, of the word. The learned and the unlearned may come to understand Scripture because the hard passages are made understandable by the easy, the apparent, the the obvious passages. Does that mean we don't use knowledge from outside of Scripture to help us understand Scripture? Well, no. We can use science and philosophy but those things are to be put in their proper place, right? They are helpful, but not because Scripture is obscure or relies on outside sources or experts to be interpreted. Again, the Confession says this, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of these things as are revealed in the Word. And that there are some circumstances, listen to this, and that there are some, you know, there are a few circumstances concerning the worship of God, and government of the church, common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. So two things that I want to pull out of that obscure passage from the Westminster Confession. Two things are necessary to point out from that section. First, to come to an understanding of Scripture, one must have what? The inward illumination of the Spirit of God. Not a PhD in theology, but a work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. No one can understand Scripture without being regenerate, in other words. Second, there are some things, some things, and this is where I pause, concerning worship, it mentions two things, worship and church government. Those two areas. There's some things common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence. In other words, the scripture tells us to worship God, a general principle, but it does not tell us at what time to meet for worship on the Lord's Day. Right? Such details can be figured out by the, according to prudence and the structures of a particular culture. 
right? We come to a common agreement about the time, but we can't leave off the principle, which is worship God without images, right? The trouble with going, the trouble with much going on in the medieval church and reappearing today in a movement known as Reformed Scholasticism is that philosophy is deemed necessary for coming to a proper understanding of Scripture. That it's necessary, that you must have uh, reason and philosophy come along to elucidate um, the Scriptures. In some sense, that is a denial of the Reformed doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture. If you must have philosophy to come and interpret Scripture, then you've moved away from perspicuity. And you've returned the Bible to the hands of the experts. Experts. Thomas Aquinas spent his life... You've heard of Thomas Aquinas, Roman Catholic theologian of the medieval time. He spent his life synthesizing Aristotelian philosophy and Christian theology. Synthesizing those together... Um, for a, a wholesome, as he would say, a wholesome theology. Um, those two areas, philosophy and theology, were understood to be compatible. The one source was man, and the other source was God. Um, here's what, uh, one more quote. I'm sorry, I'm quoting so many things this morning, but that's just the way it is. It's a history lesson. I'm searching for what the popes have said about Thomas Aquinas. And I come across a quote by Joseph Ratzinger, who is, um, his stage name is um, Pope Benedict XVI. And um, the pope before our pope, uh, not our, their pope um, now. This is 2010, and here's what he said about Aquinas. For St. Thomas, the encounter with the pre-Christian philosophy of Aristotle, and that's Aristotelian philosophy, Aristotle, who died in about 322 B.C., opened up a new perspective. Aristotelian philosophy was obviously a philosophy worked out without the knowledge of the Old and New Testaments, an explanation of the world without revelation through reason alone. And this consequent rationality was convincing. Thus, the old form of the Father's our philosophy no longer worked. The relationship between philosophy and theology, between faith and reason, needed to be rethought. A philosophy existed, listen to what he says, that was complete and convincing in itself, a rationality that preceded the faith, followed by theology, a form of thinking with the faith and in the faith. The pressing question was this. Are the world of rationality, philosophy conceived of without Christ, and the world of faith compatible? Can you bring these two things together? Or are they mutually exclusive? Elements that affirm the incompatibility of these two worlds were not lacking, but St. Thomas was firmly convinced of their compatibility. Indeed, that philosophy worked out without the knowledge of Christ was awaiting, as it were, the light of Jesus to be complete. This was the great surprise of Thomas Aquinas that determined the path he took as a thinker, showing this independence of philosophy and theology and at the same time their reciprocal rationality was the historic mission of the great teacher. And thus it can be understood 
that in the 19th century, when the incompatibility of reason and faith was strongly declared, Pope Leo XIII pointed to St. Thomas as a guide in the dialogue between them. In his theological work, St. Thomas supposes and concretizes this rationality. Faith consolidates, integrates, and illumines the heritage of truth that human reason acquires. The trust with which St. Thomas endows these two instruments of knowledge, faith and reason, may be traced back to the conviction that both stem from the one source of all truth, the divine logos, which is active in both contexts, that of creation and that of redemption. Now, again, a lot of words there, um, many of which are obscure. To say that there are two instruments of knowledge, two instruments of knowledge, doctrinal knowledge or faith, which is doctrinal knowledge, and reason, philosophical knowledge, is in itself to betray the scriptures. Right, which first soundly condemns man's ability to reason well without illumination, and second teaches that scripture alone is truth. Scripture alone is truth. Now there is much more that could be said about this. I mean, we have to think about the place of natural law, the relationship between general and special revelation, how we think and understand the doctrine of of epistemology. But for today, I want to point out the contrast between the Reformed Church's historical understanding of Scripture and the perversion out of which it came, which was a a synthesis between philosophy and theology. Now, why belabor this? Why is this important? Why, why do we care about this? Because there are many today in the Reformed Church who are in love with philosophy and are claiming that what Aquinas did was right and proper, and we are doomed if we don't do the same thing as what Aquinas did. There are many who are impatient with Scripture's silence on certain matters, and so they desire for philosophy then to come in and fill in the gaps that they just can't get answered from Scripture. They've begun even calling themselves Reformed Scholastics or Reformed Thomists. And a Thomist is somebody who follows the teachings of, of Thomas Aquinas. They include theologians who are writing books for Crossway, professors at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, and many somewhat influential bloggers. Um, They are on the verge of claiming that philosophy, not merely illumination, is necessary for the proper understanding of Scripture. They, in the end, will rip the Scriptures out of the common man's hands, out of faithful pastors' hands, and demand that they be the sole discerners of God's truth. The Scripture that God has given us this morning... This very last few thoughts of the Apostle Paul to Pastor Timothy. He's given it to us as a kind of warning these men who call themselves Reformed Scholastics need to heed. As do all of us who are tempted to think too highly of ourselves and our ability to reason. These short verses serve as a warning to those who fall in love with philosophy. Um, Such a love will end in tragedy. That is another thing this passage teaches. 
So what does the Apostle Paul do? The Apostle Paul warns Pastor Timothy in the final thought of this long letter filled with directives for Timothy to implement as he um, shepherds this church in Ephesus. He says, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. So once again, we get Paul opposing thing, you know, saying don't do this and do that, um, which is his general method. The contrast is between worldly and empty chatter or false knowledge and what has already been entrusted to Timothy. What has been entrusted to Timothy? The deposit. The deposit has been given to him. What is the deposit? It is the apostolic teaching. Right? It's the apostolic teaching, that deposit of teaching that has come to the church. He is to guard, he's to keep it safe as a treasured possession, the teaching he has received. The very teaching he has received in this letter, which is the word of God. This deposit, the apostolic teaching, is contrasted with worldly and empty chatter and false knowledge. One he is to defend, the other he is to destroy. One he is to defend, the other he is to attack. So if he is to guard the apostolic teaching, what is he to oppose? Paul is returning to something that he's already told to Timothy earlier at the beginning of this letter. Chapter 1, verse 6. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. These false teachers, you may remember, were engaged in fruitless discussion. It seems to be a synonym for what Paul calls here in our passage worldly and empty chatter. Um, They are constantly involved in godless conversations And godless conversations aren't just one where you're using profanity. Godless conversations are ones where you're using philosophy to tell God what is right. Right? That that also is godless and empty chatter. They are constantly involved in godless conversations. It's conversation that leads only to speculation but not to godliness. It is conversation that leads to confident assertions assertions, but not the clarity and basis found in Scripture. What then does the Apostle Paul mean when he says the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge? The first part of that phrase is the Greek word antithesis. Antithesis. Um, where, where we get our, I mean, that's, that's a word we use today. It's things in opposition to one another. Right? The philosopher engages always in antithesis. The best philosophers are the ones who can argue, yeah, what about this? The best. Right? Things set in antithesis to one another. He asks one question and then assaults that question by considering its opposites. Um, this chair is solid. When I kick it, my foot hurts. But what if the chair only exists in my mind? Then, when I I kick it, I'm not really kicking it. It just stimulates something in my brain to make my foot hurt. So on and on and on go the questions of the philosophers ad infinitum. Speculations with no conclusive results. 
That is not knowledge. That's not knowledge. This is false knowledge according to the word of God, and that's why Paul calls it what he does here, falsely called knowledge. Knowledge is what? What is knowledge? It is that which leads to the fear of the Lord and is something given to us by God. It's a deposit, so to speak, right? Elsewhere, Paul writes, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Right? He manifests in us the knowledge that brings him glory. Right? Knowledge is an awareness of God given by God himself. Not so with the philosophers. They are simply content to offer opposing arguments, antithesis until the cows come home. And knowledge for them is a function of reason, a function of self, a function that rises up from within and not a gift given from the source of all knowledge, God himself. Is there danger in going after this kind of knowledge? The false knowledge. Is there danger in it? The knowledge that puffs up and does not edify. The wrangling about words and genealogies. The vain mutterings of of man filled with pride. Of course, Paul says, some have professed this knowledge and thus gone astray from the faith. They've gone astray from the faith. Become a practitioner and a professor of knowledge from a source outside of God and you are in danger of rejecting The God you rejected from your sources. I mean, it makes sense. If you think man is the arbiter and the source of all wisdom, then inevitably the fruit of your source will become the object of your worship. Right? Wherever that knowledge comes from will be the thing that you begin to worship. That's why philosophers worship themselves. If man is omnipotent, he is to be worshipped. Right? And therefore, God must be rejected as a competitor to your idol, which is man himself. So what does this all mean for you, for us? First, be careful what you consume. Be careful what you consume. If, if Scripture isn't your first consumption, then you're in danger of shipwreck. Right? Philosophy is not simply generic knowledge. It is unsafe. It is an alternate worldview. Okay? It is not, um, it's not neutral. Right? It will seduce you. And it will seduce you to think more highly of yourself than you ought. Second, remember that this exhortation is to Pastor Timothy. Right? He is to be careful to feed his flock and give them the nourishment that will actually lead to their growth. He is not to get himself wrapped up in babbling and stupid disputes. He's to preach the word in season and out of season. Put, put yourself, therefore, under preaching that convicts your heart, not sti- simply stimulates your mind. Does it convict your heart? Does it lead to self-examination? Does it lead to you be feeling pressed down at points and seeing your failures? Or does it merely lead to a um, does it merely lead to a series of back and forth and antithesis with your pastor third expect food for your soul from preaching 
Expect food for your soul from preaching, not a lecture on philosophy which would lead your which would lead to temptation and a temptation to remove yourself from the word of God. Calvin writes on his sermon on this passage, when we come to the sermon, let us thus be advised. I do not come to hear any vain noise or sound to return home to my house as though I had come here to hear a player or some songs of music. We may in no wise come to seek our fleshly desires in God's doctrine. What then do we seek? The food of our souls. And therefore, let it suffice us to have true substance laid out before us, and let us keep it in, keep in our wits that they run not astray. And let us give the bridle to our vain curiosities, which we are too much given unto of nature, but let us bend ourselves always to our God, who wants us to take pleasure in his word. Not that it should bring us a vain sound or any good speculations and subtleties, but to nourish and feed our souls. Fourth, and this is, this is an important point. It strikes me as I hear about uh, the work that the Belithos are doing in Africa. Trust Scripture's simplicity. Trust Scripture's simplicity and the fact that God has made provision for your soul in a simple word. In a simple word. Don't be a reformed scholastic and rip Bibles out of the hands of, of those that God thinks are precious. Which is the poor. And the weak. And the orphan. And the unlearned. Right? Don't be a reformed scholastic. It will eventually lead to your rejection of God. Calvin again says this. They who are called to preach the gospel, to teach the flock of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to lead them cannot do their duty unless they lay all ambition aside and seek not to please men, nor to be seen, nor be in reputation. They must account all this as vanity. And can content themselves to build the church, to procure the salvation of souls, to magnify the majesty of our Lord Jesus, and cause all to submit themselves obediently to God. To be short, let it suffice them to put forth the simplicity of the gospel, to enrich those who desire to be satisfied with God's blessings. You know, so, so to put forth the simplicity of the gospel. There is, I mean, maybe the Reformed have always erred in this way. Calvin didn't. Read Calvin's sermons and they're so simple. He's just pleading with people to obey God and, and know Jesus, right? But perhaps it was quickly after that, quickly at the second generation, third generation Reformers that began to be bored with the simplicity of the gospel. And so began to um, speculate and turn their longing eye to philosophy. Well, we must reject that. We must reject that to be faithful to what Scripture says. Fifth, have it as your ambition to lead a godly life. God has given us his word, his spirit, so that we can understand it and obey it and each other in the church so we can have accountability and spiritual oversight to persevere in it. Right? Love God and have it as your ambition to be pleasing to him. That's it. That's, that's, that's all 
That's all you have to do in this life. Love God and have it as your ambition to be pleasing to him. Finally, the Apostle Paul closes his letter with this simple benediction, grace be with you. And we think that that is just a throwaway throwaway line at the end of the letter. But think through all that I've been saying to you about the previous few verses. If there is anything that is not ours, it's grace. right? If there's anything that doesn't come from within. I mean, we can think thoughts, and we can, we can be built up in our vanity, and, and we can think that our thoughts are pretty sophisticated thoughts, but grace, that doesn't come from within. Grace has to come from without, right? This, the grace of God is his to dispense with as he pleases, As the scriptures are our one source of infallible truth, so is his grace the one way by which we have any spiritual awakening at all. So Paul reminds Timothy of that great truth. He's saying to him, God is with you. God is blessing you. God will provide. God has spoken to you in his word. God has put his spirit within you. God has put you in his household, the church. God will never leave you or forsake you. God is with you. God be with you. God is, has disposed himself to be on your side. You need nothing else. You need nothing else. That's why Paul closes this letter with grace be with you. What an encouragement. What an encouragement to set our minds on the fact that God, God has blessed and God has given and God has opened eyes and God has made what was dead living and God has done it all. And then we think we can be so arrogant as to say, well, God, let me, let me inform you by the thoughts in my head and by my reason what exactly I think your scriptures mean. It's foolishness. It's a, a fool's errand to do that. And we must resist it and rely on the simplicity of the word of God and the simplicity of the gospel. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We do rejoice in it, Father. We, we ask that you would forgive us for, for complaining about it, for grumbling as we read through the Old Testament about genealogies, for, for, for grumbling about the, the length of chapters and books, and for grumbling about the, the difficult passages. Rather than, Father, what, what is true is that you've given us this precious, unequaled gift that has shown us who you are and how to know you and how to pursue you in a way that brings you all glory. Father, we thank you for this. I pray that we would would leave off our fear in reading your word, thinking that somehow we don't have enough training or don't have enough Uh, don't have uh, enough letters behind our name in order to properly understand it. Father, I pray that we would remember that it is the Spirit that illumines our minds and our hearts and gives us understanding. So, Father, I pray that we would be devoted to your word because we want to know you and that we would leave off being devoted to the words of man, which only lead to arrogance. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.